0: day of good mothers and a good mother I think spends much of her life demonstrating to her children that she is their mother. She labors tirelessly to assure that her children know who she is. She seldom if ever draws attention to the fact in I think probably many times she never even really considers it in these terms but yet her daily actions demonstrate who she is. She feeds her children. At a young age, she changes their diapers and clips their nails and nurses them back to health, remembers their birthdays and cares for them in countless ways every day no one else would really care to do. A good mother intuitively longs for her children to know that they have a loving mother and that she is that woman. This passion is not motivated by selfishness. Or pride, is it? It's motivated by integrity and love. If she is a good woman. This passion is not motivated by selfish promotion. I think we can picture it, perhaps, moms, you particularly, put yourself in the situation. A mother, for the first time, brings this baby child down to the lobby of the hospital. And father goes out and gets the car ready and pulls up to the front door, but as he's gone, she puts the child down in this car seat and starts to get her coat on and gather some things that are around her there. And somebody walks through the lobby. There's another child sitting there close by in another car seat and picks up the wrong one, picks up her child, and begins to walk out the door with it. Only a mom can really sense the anxiety that that would produce right there at that moment. I'll tell you, I don't care how gentle the woman and how soft-spoken, she's going to stop that person and say, that's my baby. And if that person doesn't listen, somebody's going to lose a body part before they get out that door, no matter how small and gentle and kind-hearted. That's her baby. And it's not just that that's her baby. She's that baby's mom. Is that selfishness on her part to fight for that baby? Is it pride on her part to say, I'm that child's mother? Not at all. We understand that intuitively. A mother's zeal to be known by her children provides a little window then into God's zeal for His creatures to know who He is. When God says, I will not share my glory with another, it's not pride. It's not selfishness. It's who God is. It's who He really is. And because he knows the reality that we must understand who he really is. Because that's the only haven for the human soul. Now in the course of human history, God only rarely makes this point explicit. To use our mother as an example, this is a place where she really has to stand up and let the point be known. But most of her days are lived just simply saying, I am your mother in small ways, in ways that are pretty undramatic. And so it is with God in many respects. He does not constantly show up from the heavens and announce His glory and His power and the majesty of His name. Most of the time, the heavens declare the glories of God. Their voice goes out into all the world loud and clear, but it is a silent voice. And it is very rare that God steps into the course of history and says, I am God, and leaves no doubt about it. And when he does this, he expects us to learn from history and to respond in faith. And highly prominent among these dramatic revelations of God in human history is the account of the ten plagues that God leveled against Egypt. For generations, Israel has languished in slavery, but God has called Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh and to say that he must release the Israelite slaves. But Pharaoh refuses, and God is poised to demonstrate his sovereign power in a most dramatic and unusual fashion. We've got to live off of this by faith. He's not going to come down every day and do these kinds of things. But he expects us to get the point. The battle lines are clearly drawn here in the book of Exodus, chapter 5 and verse 1. Exodus 5.1, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh responds saying in 5, two, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Chapter 6 and verse 6. Chapter 6 and verse 6, God says, "...Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God." then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. Who is the Lord, says Pharaoh, that I should obey him? God says, I will do what Pharaoh says cannot be done, and you will know that I am the Lord, he says to the Israelites here in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. 7-2 You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And notice what he says. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is one of those unique times in history where God has orchestrated events such that He will proclaim the majesty of His name and all will know that He is the Lord. So Moses and Aaron have already stood before Pharaoh who responded by further oppressing the Israelites. But they are emboldened, if I could say it this way, by the pep talk that they get in chapter 6. God repeats over and again His promises and His word to Moses and Aaron, and he encourages them, and we don't see them from that point looking back. They've come to trust the promises of God, and with courage they boldly walk before Pharaoh once again, this time with a sign, verse 8 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said." You can see Pharaoh's wise men staring there in wonder at what they've just seen, stunned. Scripture does not explain the nature of their response and the fact that they are able to accomplish the same thing through their secret arts. Many scholars have claimed that they hypnotized snakes, that this was a ritual incantation that was done and these snakes were made stiff. We don't know, and where the magicians used secret arts, all we know is that Moses and Aaron simply obey God. The text doesn't really work overtime to get us to understand how it is that they perform these feats, these magicians. But even if this was a display of raw demonic power by the magicians, the point is God trounces Pharaoh in round one of this fight. And you imagine this snake eating the other snakes right there in front of you. I mean, the point's pretty clear for Pharaoh to see. But Pharaoh's heart is tragically hardened, he refuses to yield to God's authority. Pharaoh's position is still, who does God think that he is to tell me what to do? Soft heart would have fell down before God and repented and let the Israelites go immediately before disaster struck. But God has warned Pharaoh in a way that causes no trouble to Pharaoh. Egypt has not been hit Egypt has not been hurt. God lays down this obvious sign before Pharaoh. So they have delivered the word, let Israel go, and now they have delivered a sign that is irrefutable. God's power is at work. No one's been hurt yet, but Pharaoh hardens his heart. Why? His heart is hardened by the design of God so that God can here at this place at this time display his power in a unique way. And we enter then into 10 plagues that come upon Egypt. We're familiar with these plagues. We don't learn of them, probably most of us, for the first time today. But I think we should look as an overview at them, then I'd like to run through them quickly and draw some conclusions at the end. We won't look at all of them today, more on that in a moment. But the primary purpose of the plagues is to demonstrate who God is. I trust this has been made clear in chapter 5 and verse 2. Who is the Lord, says Pharaoh. Chapter 7 and verse 5, God says, They will know who I am. This is the point of these plagues, even to the Israelites in chapter 6 and verse 7. The point is to display who God is. This isn't a divine firework show for our enjoyment only. These plagues are meant to reveal the nature and the character and the power of God. And we're meant to live off of this by faith in this history. Secondly, the plagues form a subtle assault on several of the gods of Egypt. The plague against Egypt you see here in the left column and the attack on the Egyptian deities. This slide will be sufficient for today. But we do not see, as you notice in that right column, that there is a a specific deity with every uh, plague that is being addressed, but it's hard not to see the connections between some of these plagues, particularly the water to blood as the Nile was seen as uh, was deified, and the frogs as a frog headed goddess of fruitfulness uh, was worshiped in Egypt. And as you work your way through, and as we get through in the weeks to, uh, to come, we see there's these connections between what God is doing and the gods that the Egyptians worshiped. Again, not a clear connection at all places. Maybe some things we still don't know, in fact, about what is going on there. But there is a definite connection between the worship of Egypt and these plagues. The third point is this, that the plagues are systematically arranged in three unrelenting cycles of assault that culminate in a tenth plague. As you see here on this far right column with the coloring there, we notice a morning confrontation First, and then the second plague, a confrontation in Pharaoh's palace. Then the third plague with no confrontation, just a sudden plague that comes down. The same thing happens in the second cycle, the same type of response to Pharaoh or or interaction with Pharaoh. And the same thing takes place again in the third cycle. So we have these three cycles, each with three installments that follow along the very same pattern as God continues to slam Egypt with this message of who He is and demonstrates His power. All of it culminating in that tenth and final plague. Remember how God has set this up. Israel is my firstborn. Pharaoh, you let my firstborn go, or I will not let your firstborn go. This is the battle line that has already been drawn in the text of Exodus, and this is the plague to which all is leading. Everything pointing to this great and final traumatic destruction in Egypt. I'll conclude, Lord willing, with a fourth point, but let's just keep these in mind as an overview. The primary purpose is to demonstrate who God is. There is an attack on the Egyptian gods in all of these plagues, and there is a very systematic arrangement to the way that they take place in Egypt. Let's go then to the first plague. We find that in verse 14 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Notice that phrase, worship me. Literally, the word is to serve. It's a very interesting point, isn't it? You're serving Pharaoh now. The task here is to liberate Israel to serve God. To serve means worship. That's the idea of it. The translation's a fair translation, but it's actually the word serve. Verse 16, "...but until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says." Verse 17, "...by this you will know that I am the Lord." With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, "'Tell Aaron, take your staff.'" and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars, which is an interpretive phrase. It simply reads, even in the woods and stones, which no one is quite sure what that means. But Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But... The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Some thoughts on this section in this first plague. Was this literal blood? It could have been, and there's nothing that would stop us from needing to believe that. It might have been literal blood. There's some reasons to believe that it perhaps was not literal red and white corpuscles in all water in in Egypt. And that is, first of all, that the word blood is sometimes used in the Bible of the color red. We read, for instance, in Joel 2 and Revelation 6 of the moon turning to blood The idea there is usually understood to mean that the moon turns red, not that it turns into an actual body of liquid, a liquid blood. Secondly, the Nile was known to turn red from time to time due to high concentrations of fungi, which would render the water thick and undrinkable. That connects to a third point directly, and that is that all of the other plagues employ concentrations of natural plague. It was not unknown for the land to be infiltrated with frogs, or locusts, gnats, or these kinds of things, or boils for that instance. It's just the concentration of it that is unique in all of the other plagues. Because of that, it is then perhaps likely that what is happening here is there is something that is natural taking place, but in a miraculous way as... Aaron and Moses, call this plague down upon Israel. It doesn't trouble our faith at all, one way or the other. If we learn that it was actual blood, we believe in the miracles of God's Word, and it might have been that. But there's reason to believe that perhaps that's not precisely what is meant here. It's contaminated at the command of God, and that is the point, and it is undrinkable. The magicians, how do we interpret their producing of this same miracle. How do they duplicate the plague? Well, we can say with a bit of a smile on our face that it would have probably helped Pharaoh a whole lot more if they'd reversed the plague rather than joining the problem here, but they somehow are able to duplicate what Moses and Aaron do. But let's remember that God is running this show, isn't he? He knows that these magicians will have the power to do this very same thing. We don't know if they're surprised by it. We don't know if there's some sort of sleight of hand or trick that they're accomplishing. We don't know if this is direct demonic power. But God knows that they will be able to do the very same thing. He's setting them up, He's preparing them. They have been able, first of all, to produce a stick that becomes a snake. And now they're able to turn this water to blood. God prepares them for what's coming next. One more point, and that is the Nile itself. Egyptian civilization depended upon and revolved around the Nile River. In a land with so little rain, this river supplied life to Egypt, and the Egyptians responded by personifying the river as a life-giving force. They worshipped it. So Egypt's source of life has become a cesspool of death. And the country groans. The water in which the previous Pharaoh had sought to drown Moses now is corrupted and is a source of stinking death. The second plague follows at the end of chapter 7, verse 25. After seven days passed, after the Lord struck the Nile, then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 8, verse 1, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Again, the word is to serve me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The on your people has been taken by some as they look at the Hebrew text to be will crawl up on your people. will climb you like a tree. The frogs will go up on you and on your people and all your officials. I'm sorry, verse 4 is that phrase. Will go up on is the phrase I was looking for in verse 4. The idea that they will climb up on the Egyptians. So then the Lord, verse 5, says to Moses... Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. This had to be a horrifying situation. It should, uh, I suppose if we're really reading it, it should start to get kind of creepy about this point. You think of frogs jumping all over your body. Now, frogs were very prolific in, in the Nile. The Egyptians were used to seeing a lot of frogs. Reminds me of a night when I was baling hay in a field that was possessed with frogs. I don't know why, but for some reason at that particular night, there were frogs everywhere, and as I was standing in the back of the wagon, these bales was the old way, but these bales were flying at us, and we were stacking the bales by hand, and there's frog legs and heads and parts coming out of the the bale of hay everywhere. There's frogs everywhere. It was a kind of a strange experience. Well, the Egyptians were used to that. That happened all the time. That happened every year when the Nile flooded. There'd be frogs everywhere. As the water would recede back to the Nile, it would leave all these frogs on the banks and they'd work their way back, hopping back into the river. And as they looked at that and noticed these frogs, they said, this is really a sign of fertility. There must be some sort of deity that's involved with this because every year there's all these frogs in Egypt. And they began to worship the frog and had, in fact, a goddess with a frog head named Heket. She was all the rage in Egypt. She got all kinds of worship by those who saw her as a symbol of fertility. But God smothers the Egyptians with frogs till no one's happy. They're climbing all over their bodies and they're in every nook and cranny of their houses. They've got all the frog they can handle. And apparently, frog bread never caught on, as we've never heard of it since. But it's in their kneading troughs. That is where they made their bread in their ovens. It's a horrible infestation. But we notice again in verse 7 that the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, you say, nice job, guys. You've done it again. You've contributed to the whole problem. But in their defiance, they actually participate in God's judgment by bringing yet more frogs onto the land. Verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Now, it's hard for me not to read that verse and say, Moses is really messing with Pharaoh here. You, you name the day whenever you want, you know, I'll pray for you. And he says, tomorrow, verse 10, which in the idiom of the Hebrew probably means something more like as soon as possible. But tomorrow is the word that's used, but in the way the phrase is done in the Hebrew, it's probably saying uh, right away, as soon as you can. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. What's the point? That you will know who God is. We will remove the plague. And the the frogs, verse 11, will leave you in your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. You notice here, too, something interesting has just sort of slipped in here, and that's Moses talking to Pharaoh. He was afraid to do that. He said, I cannot speak before Pharaoh, or before Pharaoh and, and God gave him Aaron. But now we begin to see Moses stepping forward and gaining courage in the face of Pharaoh and standing and speaking himself before the king. Now, Pharaoh, on his part, realizes that although his magicians can produce frogs, they can't take them away. He knows where to go. And he asks for Moses and for Aaron to pray for him. This same one that told them to go back to their bricks is now telling them, will you pray for me? Please take this away. Verse 12, After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Baskets and primitive shovels and brooms are used to clear out houses and rake the land clean, and these piles upon piles of frogs rotting in the hot Egyptian sun. The frog, the supposed giver of the breath of life. Think of the irony. The Egyptians saw this as the giver of the breath of life. And here this giver of the breath of life is piled all over, rotting piles of flesh. This giver of the breath of life was taking the Egyptians' breath away. But once again, Verse 15, Pharaoh saw that there was relief and he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Now, a third plague in this first cycle hits rapidly. Without warning, without discussion with Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, verse 16, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. And when the Egyptians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and on animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. We don't really know what these gnats were, but we do see that they were prolific. They covered the land. Obviously, a hyperbole in verse 17 that speaks of all the dust becoming gnats, but the point is, they're everywhere. Magicians recognize here that this is the direct work of God and they testify to that fact. They had matched the sign. They had matched the first plague. They come to this. They matched the second plague as well. But now they come to this third plague and they are helpless before the God of heaven. God has baited them to keep them going on this pattern of copying and duplicating what he's done, to show to them now that they can't. Moses and Aaron are not magicians. Moses and Aaron are obedient servants of the living God. And he makes it crystal clear to them. A fourth plague hits then, the first plague in the second cycle, and we see again that Pharaoh is confronted at the river Nile. Verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I am the Lord. So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials and throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. They had just gotten over. These frogs and gnats, and now here here comes an infestation of flies. We notice again that Pharaoh is confronted early in the morning, probably as he goes for his ritual worship bath in the Nile. But since Pharaoh does not let Israel go, God lets flies go upon Pharaoh without sparing his people, but sparing the people of God. God has pounded Egypt now. He's pounded her from the water, from the earth, and now from the air. And the reason is what? Verse 22. The reason is that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. This land that Egypt claimed as her own, the most powerful nation on earth, God says, I am God here as well and you will know this. Verse 25, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Remember, God's word was three days' journey from the land. Here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our God, would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? Read this way, I think. You know this, Pharaoh. You know this. We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as He commands us. We see Moses again speaking directly to Pharaoh and saying God's will is necessary. We must follow it. It must be three days. What does it mean the Egyptians will find it detestable? It might mean that they just find it horribly gross. But it probably means something more along the lines that they would find the slaughter of sacred animals a sacrilege. And by watching the way that Israel worshipped, they would come down upon them and kill them for their sacrilege. So Moses says, listen, Pharaoh, this is not going to work, and you know it's not going to work. You need to let us go. We need to obey God. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. So pray for me. Moses just kind of ignores that point of it. If he's let go into the desert, he can go the extra three days. And he just answers, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and the officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses says, Pharaoh, let's end this game now. Quit telling me you're going to let us go and then changing your mind. Let us go. Let us do what God has said. Act in your own interest. Verse 30, Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Pharaoh's repeated insistence on defying God creates an opportunity for God to continue displaying his power, which he does. Plague number 5, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said tomorrow, the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it, all the livestock of the Egyptians died But not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. This second plague of the second cycle involves again a confrontation of Pharaoh at his palace. And this plague has devastating consequences on Egypt. This had to be a tremendously terrifying economic crisis with all of these animals going down. We don't know if this is somewhat hyperbole, that every single animal died, because later there will be other animals that died, the firstborn of some animals, or if it's just a certain kind of animal. But at any rate, this is a devastating blow on Egypt. Egypt is now, after this day, no longer the power it was. It could handle these flies and frogs and all of this was a matter of inconvenience, but Egypt has now been stung economically. She is no longer important just because of this event, and there's more to come. The boils follow. Number six, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot. You notice again, no confrontation now in this third installment of the second cycle. Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. Notice the magicians in the first two plagues they copy the works of Moses and Aaron. In the third plague, they try but fail. In plagues four and five, they stand around quiet. In plague six, they can't even stand before Pharaoh any longer. Either because of ritual impurity or perhaps because they are that infirm through this skin problem. God is sweeping the field and He is taking no prisoners. He is displaying his power with devastating efficiency, and Egypt groans under the assault. And should Pharaoh think of getting out of this now, God himself hardens the heart of Pharaoh to display for all time for us to see his power and his glory. Pharaoh is certainly contributing in all of this. He's not a pawn in God's hand who he is manipulating to have a hardened heart. But nonetheless, God hardens his heart actively so that he can display his glory in Egypt and so that he can display his glory to us today. He's sweeping the field. He's leaving no prisoners. And he is displaying power with devastating efficiency as Egypt groans under the assault. Israel is still in bondage, but the chains are beginning to snap. We finished the second cycle, and I want to stop there for today. We've covered an awful lot of text here in part because it kind of gave me some fear of doing 10 weeks of sermons on plagues. (laughs) So thank you for plowing quickly with me. The other thing is that these plagues are really not difficult to understand. There's not a lot of theology going on there. The text is very straightforward. It's quite easy to see. It ought to get us itching. It ought to make us kind of our skin crawl when we think of some of these devastating problems. It was a horrifying time, but it's not hard to understand. The key is what to do with these events. And I do call upon your attention for a bit longer because the goal here is not simply to understand the text. We need to understand the text as well as we can so that we might enter into the event by faith, so to speak. But the issue here is what to do with the text. Is the idea that we should take from this that we should obey God like Moses obeyed God? Is it that we should not be stubborn like Pharaoh was so stubborn? Should we be considering the wonders of emancipation and how God hates slavery? I believe these are all important lessons. But they're certainly not the primary point. You travel back in time in your mind. Or say you can walk into some machine and go back to these times. And you live through all of these events, which scholars think took somewhere in the range of nine to ten months. And you live through all of these events, and you come back and talk to some reporters and tell them what you've seen. Are you going to be spending your time talking about Moses and Pharaoh and slavery? I think what you're going to say is, I saw the power of God. This is the power of God. It is displayed for us to see who He is. The narrative is about the power of His name. And these plagues are intended for us to know who God is. The God of the Bible is a God who longs for His creatures to know Him. For better or for worse. But He wants His Creatures to know that He is God. And as a loving mother longs for her children to know that she is their mom, so God is zealous that we would see His glory and His splendor. And this revelation then comes to us in word and deed. We see here that God is a God who acts in time, space, mass continuum. He's a God who acts and He is a God who speaks. He says, I am, and He says, I am the Word. You see, the gods of Egypt did not speak. The Egyptians at least believed that the gods of Egypt had the power to help them do some miraculous things, but they never spoke. And this is exactly how fallen humanity likes their gods to act. To just keep their mouth quiet. Let me do my thing and get your power to help me out where I am, but don't talk to me. Don't tell me who you are and what you're going to do. They like them right where they can see them, on the shelf, or eating cereal across the dining room table, or sitting in a garage on four wheels, or standing on a foundation, or secure in a bank and represented on a spreadsheet. We want our gods to be mute, to be quiet, and to not tell us what to do. But the God of the Bible speaks. He tells Pharaoh what he's doing. He tells him exactly how it's going to go down. This is going to happen, and when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen. God tells Pharaoh what he's doing. And he tells Pharaoh what he's supposed to do. The gods of the pagans are toys that you play with. You never toy with the God of Scripture. He tells you what's up, and he tells you what to do, and he acts according to his promises. Is that pride? Is that pride? Does God just love to go around banging people, making them miserable? It's not pride. It's who He is. He's telling you, this is who I am. I'm the God of all power. Now, He doesn't reveal Himself to every generation like this, does He? We haven't seen anything like this. In fact, I absolutely hate it when I pick up that newspaper and some nation has been hit by a natural catastrophe and there's got to be some preacher that comes forward and says, here's why God did this. I wish they'd just put a sock in their mouth or tell their wife or something. They've got to always go to the front page of the paper and say, I know what God's doing and here's why He brought this catastrophe on these people at this time. We don't speak for God. He speaks for Himself. And these plagues and these disasters, the natural catastrophes of our world, they are certainly acts of God in some mysterious way. But if we don't have revelation to interpret them, then we just need to keep our mouths quiet and trust His hand. But in this place, at this time, God spoke. And He said, this is my hand, this is my power, this is what I will do. This is how you are to interpret these acts. And as I've said often through this sermon, he does not do this every day. God's miraculous power is no circus sideshow, where we stand around and cheer. Yeah, God, do it again. Hit him again. Give it to him again. God only needs to act once to demonstrate his power, and his people are supposed to get the point. In other words, the impact of this word here right before me should be just as powerful as if you and I had lived through these plagues. We should think no less of God. We should believe from this history of His power and His glory and the might of His name and that He as God will do as He pleases and will gain glory for His name. This is who He is. We read that, didn't we, in Psalm 78 this morning. So that one generation will tell another about the mighty acts of God. That means that where we are at this place in salvation history, this is what God has given us and this is sufficient. We don't need necessarily a miraculous event every day to confirm who God is. We have the text of his written word. And what does this history teach us? So much can be said, and I plan to say much more on this next week, Lord willing, but in part it says, does it not, that God is sovereign. The God that we worship is not one God among many. He's not a God that we placate. He's not a God who sits silently and we decide what He will do for us. He is a God is sovereign over all gods. He is all powerful. He keeps his word. He rules history. These messages are ingrained in this narrative that this is who God is. And this God always works to save his people no matter the difficulty. The plagues demonstrate God's power to save And His power to save is being worked out in salvation history, not merely in isolated events, but He is working a massive salvation project from beginning to end. And we see the evidences of His power to do this right here in this narrative. Think of this context and compare it with creation. As one author has pointed out, we have water as a source of life. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovers over the waters. In the Exodus, we have the water as a source of death. The fish are dying and no one can drink. In the Genesis account, we have man ruling over animals. And in the Exodus account, we have animals and insects swarming and causing misery to man. In the Genesis account, we have light coming out of darkness. Let there be light. And later in this text in Exodus, we will see light overcome by darkness. And the climax of it all is this death of the firstborn. We see in the Genesis account, God forming Adam and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. There's a message here. The Creator God, with all of His power over the creation, has the same power to use that creation to hurt, to judge, to harm. But in all of this, He is moving to do the same thing He did at the beginning at the end. There will be a day when He purges this earth of its sin and of its fallenness and restores it to its pristine condition. God's redemptive plan is large and it walks through this Exodus account. Christ is our Redeemer, not Moses. And like Moses, we find in the text of the New Testament a genealogy of who Jesus Christ is as our Deliverer. And we see Him as He defeats death and provides the start of the great reversal of nature in the conflict of the ages. Jesus, our Savior, comes and bears the penalty of human sin. And Jesus, our Savior, defeats death, reversing this death. He is the firstborn of God who dies, but He reverses the whole thing when He rises from the dead. And so God can use nature how He chooses to use nature. He can use life or He can use death. He can use light or He can use darkness. But in all of it, He uses death to strike his son and to pay the penalty of sin. And he uses life to defeat death and give life to his people. He is powerful to save over every enemy. He can beat Egypt and he can beat death. He can beat sin. He is the victor and the champion of heaven. We look with faith to this historic event because we trust that our God is the ultimate and final deliverer from death. He shows it here. Let's remember the history. Let's trust it. Let's believe it. And let's know that our God is a sovereign, all-powerful God who keeps his word and will in the end redeem his people and redeem this fallen earth to the glory of His great name, that at the end of time, God's name will stand and be praised by everyone, that He is indeed God. I hope that you know Him in that way through His Son. I pray that you do, and if you do not, I pray that you would seek His face today. This is who He is. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. If we would read this passage or be there at that event and not know Christ, God, as Gentiles, many of us, if not all of us, as Gentiles, we would be sunk. We would have nothing to do but fear and run But we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ there is rescue. And as you provided safety and haven and security for your people from the plagues in Egypt, so you provide for your people now a safety from your wrath and your judgment. We give you praise for your great and mighty power. And we sing to you to lift up your name and to exalt you for who you are. For any who know you not as Savior, please lead them to see the light and to join your side. To know that you are their God and that they must come to you in the way that you have laid out in your word. We will thank you for what you are pleased to do by giving your saving grace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.